Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, the book of Isaiah chapter 1. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 720. On occasion, when uh, we've had to take one of our boys to the doctor, especially if it's a new doctor, they have asked us about family medical history. It's not an uncommon question to get in a doctor's office. Um, but because uh, Nixon came into our family through adoption, um, we don't always know a whole lot. And so sometimes they're confused about why we don't know a whole lot, and we have to explain that. Of course, we're not the first family to be in that boat. Many adoptive families have, uh, have dealt with that same thing, but something that's, that's relatively new uh, and which, for which we're thankful is the increased understanding of, of DNA and that sort of thing. We recently had some, some testing done with him just to help us try to learn more, and we're hoping as he gets older that that, that sort of thing will be even better and that there will be more things that they'll be able to, to help him know about since we don't know. Now, what does that have to do with the prophet Isaiah? Well, as we begin a new year, we're also beginning a new journey, not through one book, but through 12 books. The plan is to preach through 12 books this year, um, the last 12 books of the Old Testament from Hosea to Malachi. And these books have been collectively referred to as the uh, minor prophets. Um, Hosea to Malachi. And the reason we call them minor prophets is not because they are of minor importance, but because the books are generally shorter in length than the so-called major prophets. And so for a long time, these, these 12 smaller books were practically treated as if they were one. They were bound together on a single scroll and they were referred to as the 12. So I'm calling this series 12 Faithful Voices. Twelve faithful voices. And my plan, Lord willing, is to make it through all twelve of these books in one year. We'll see if that works out, but that's the plan nonetheless. Now, Isaiah is not a minor prophet. He is the most major of, of the major prophets. But what I want to do this morning is I want to use the opening verses of Isaiah to sequence some prophetic DNA, if we can use that analogy. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a small sample, a specimen from Isaiah, and see if, if this can help us to understand something about the prophets in general. So let's read together here in Isaiah. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. 
They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure, endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're going to stop there and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, which was spoken so long ago by our brother Isaiah. And I pray that uh, you would help, the, help us to hear this as it is, which is a word from you. Not a word that you spoke long ago, but a word that you are speaking still today. Spirit of God, would you uh, impress this word upon our hearts. Help us to hear it as if you were in this very room speaking it to us. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your power and your presence would be evident to us through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I say we're going to try to sequence some prophetic DNA. And what I want to do is I want to especially point out three strands of prophetic DNA that we're going to hopefully see in all of the minor prophets. The first is that prophets tell the truth in all three tenses. Prophets tell the truth in all three tenses. And when I say all three tenses, I mean past, present, and future. Now, we tend to use the word prophecy. If I were to have taken a poll this morning and ask you, what is a prophecy? My, my, my suspicion is that almost all, if not every single person would have said a prophecy is a, some kind of prediction of, of something that will happen in the future. But I just want us to do a simple exercise. Obviously, we're dealing with a small sample, but I just want you to look over these 20 verses and pay attention to just the verb tenses. How many verbs are in the past tense? How many in the present? How many in the future? And what you will find is the vast majority of what Isaiah says, at least in these verses, is not about the future, but it is about the past and the present. God begins in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's not telling the future, is it? Right? That's, that's dealing with the past and the present. I have reared children, I have brought them up, and they have rebelled against me. He goes on in verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Present tense. My people do not understand. And so you'll, you'll just have to kind of take my word for it that, uh, that this is primarily what the prophets do. They primarily apply what God has said and done in the past to what was then there present. So an Old Testament scholar named Paul House puts it this way. He says, only about 10% of prophecy predicts the future. So here's somebody who has studied the prophets and he says about 10% of what the prophets have to say was some kind of prediction of the future, which means that 90% is about the present and or the past. He goes on to say most of these predictions, such as the birth, the birth of, Jesus. of Jesus, have already been fulfilled. So some of the things that were in the future to the prophets are in the past to us. Therefore, he says, it is best to read prophecy primarily as teaching about faithful living rather than as blueprints for the future. The prophets do speak of the future, but this is not their main emphasis. So I find it helpful to think of prophets not primarily as some kind of fortune tellers or future tellers, but primarily as preachers and as simply truth tellers. Yes, they tell the truth about what's going to happen in the future, but most of what they do is tell the truth about what God has said and done in the past and how that applies to the present. So they're taking from, they're speaking to people in their generation and they're saying, here is what God has said, here's what God has done, and now here's how that applies to you. So when you put it that way, Old Testament prophets have much more in common with someone like me, a New Testament preacher, than they do with Nostradamus or something like that, uh, where you know if, you, if only you can sort of decipher the code, then you can figure out what they're talking about. No, it's, it's, it's mostly pretty straightforward. So what is the role of a pastor teacher? It is to take what God has said in the past, what God has done in the past, and to apply that to the lives of the people God has entrusted to me in the present. I can't speak to people in the future. I can't speak to people in the past. All I can do is speak to the people who are hearing my voice right now. I, 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 can, I can say, here's what God has said, here's what He has done, and here's how that applies to you and to me. That's exactly what Old Testament prophets did. They took the covenant that God had made with the, the people of, of Israel... And they said to the people of their generation, here are the ways that you have broken this covenant. And, and this is what God has said will happen if you don't repent. So even when they spoke of the future, even when they said, here's what's going to happen, it was often based on what God had promised and warned in the past. God had said way back in Deuteronomy, if you don't repent, if you break this covenant, that I'm going to kick you out of the land. You're going to go into exile. And so what do the prophets do? They come along and they say, okay, here are all the ways you're breaking the covenant. Here are all the specific ways. God has warned us if we don't repent, He's going to kick us out of the land. He's going to send us into exile. So get ready because He's about to do it. That's all they're doing is taking what He's said in the past and they're applying it in the present. So that's the first strand of prophetic DNA. They they tell the truth in all three tenses. 
the truth about what, is, what God has said and done in the past, the truth about how God's people were falling short in the present, and also the truth about judgment and hope in the future. The second strand of prophetic DNA is they, they use purposeful repetition. Purposeful repetition. And I want to emphasize the word purposeful because sometimes people can be repetitive because they forget that they've already said something. You know, we've probably known people like that who you, they tell you the same story that they've told you a hundred times. And they're just, they either just really love that story or they've forgotten that they've told you that a hundred times. Other times people are repetitive because they're too lazy or too uncreative or whatever to think of anything else to say or any other way to say it. But then there is a kind of repetition that is purposeful, that is intentional. Uh, I, I was thinking this week about, you know, what are some examples I can think of in my life. And, and I thought to this day, I can still remember the Archimedes principle that I learned, I learned in seventh grade science class. The buoyant force is equal to the weight of the displaced water. Now, how can I remember that? Not because I have an excellent memory, because I forget all kinds of stuff. Rebecca, I have to offload a lot of my memory to her. But the reason I can remember that, among other things, is because my science teacher repeated it a bunch of times. He said it so many times, and he said it in creative ways to help us remember it. He had a little, he had a little sort of jingle, you know, the buoyant force is equal to the weight of the displaced water. And that's how I remember it, because he came up with a creative way to help us remember it. That's what the prophets do. They use this kind of repetition, purposeful repetition, to drill into the heads of the people who are listening to them the, tr the truths that they have to say. And this happens on, on a small scale. So let me show you an example. Look at verse 4. And I'll, I'll put this up on the screen to kind of help, uh, help you visualize it. He says in verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, uh, children who deal corruptly. Now just pause there. What's Isaiah doing? Well, he's saying the same thing over and over, four times in a row. Sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. That's four ways of saying the same thing. He doesn't repeat the same words, but he, he takes all these different words and phrases and images to emphasize how sinful Israel is. And then he says there in the second half of verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord... They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Again, that's three ways of saying the same truth. So he's reinforcing a basic point that Israel is sinful to its core and that because of their sin, they have alienated themselves from the Lord. And I could walk you through this passage and show example after example of Isaiah doing this. And you can see that kind of repetition throughout the prophets where they have sort of this one basic point and rather than just saying it once, they will say it two or three or four times in a row in different ways to emphasize the same truth. And then this purposeful repetition happens on, on a bigger scale as well. So I want you to imagine that someone were to come to you and hand you, here, here's a transcript of five years worth of Matt's sermons. And I need you to sit down and read these all in one sitting. Now that's not, uh, that's not something I would recommend. 
uh, you to do. But just think about what you would find if you did that. Do you think that there would be any repetition? I mean, would there be every single phrase in all those five years, would it be totally unique? No, of course not. There would be lots of repetition in those five years of sermons, and that would not be accidental. It's not like I forgot I said that, or I forgot I preached that, or I'm just too lazy to think of anything else, or you know, every three weeks I just preach the same sermon over again or something like that. There's a purpose to that. Why? Because not everyone is here every Sunday. And so, you know, I may have already said it, but you may not have heard it. Or I may have said it and you forgot it. Sometimes there are things I read that I said and I forgot that I said that. I think, wow, that's a good point, man. So, so I forget that I said things sometimes. And so I, I feel confident that if I forget that I said it, you probably forget that I said it too. And even if we don't forget it, sometimes we live as if we've forgotten it, right? Sometimes we, we have, there are things that we know, but that we don't live like we know. And sometimes we have to apply the same truths to different situations. You know, I think about how earlier this year uh, in March, I preached from Psalm 46. That's a sermon, a text that I've preached at least once or twice before that. But I took it and then I applied it to the situation with this pandemic. So that's an example of, you know, you needing to hear that truth in a different context. And so when you're reading an Old Testament prophet, it's not like, you're, it's not like the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. It's not like this was one long sermon that Isaiah preached in one place at one time. That would have been really, really long. Instead... This is most likely a compilation of his writings and sermons over an entire course of ministry. And in many cases, in Isaiah's case, this spanned decades. So, of course, there's going to be repetition here. It, and it's very much intentional. That, that's one of the uh, natures of prophetic writing. And so that's the second strand of prophetic DNA is this purposeful repetition. The third strand of, of prophetic DNA is that prophetic messages tend to fall into one of three categories, sin, judgment, or restoration. Sin, judgment, or restoration. I call this my break glass in case of emergency tool anytime I'm reading the prophets. Because in all fairness, the prophets in part because of that repetition, in part because of the, the sort of figurative language that they tend to use, they can be confusing. It can be overwhelming at times. And so you can find yourself, you know, getting turned around and say, I, I'm sort of lost in the weeds of all these images and phrases that he's using. And so what I'll often do is I will stop and ask myself, which of these three things is he talking about? Is he talking about sin? Is he talking about judgment? Or is he talking about restoration? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a point in this uh, passage that we just read where he, he describes Judah as being like a lodge in a cucumber field. I don't know what that means. We don't have time to dive into what does it mean to be a lodge in a cucumber field, but it doesn't sound good based on the context. So I just say, okay, he's talking about judgment there. I could go and dig and find out what, what's the background of that? What does that mean? Or... If I'm just kind of in a hurry, I could say he's talking about judgment there. In some way, that's what he's talking about. 
So nine times out of ten, that helps me get my bearings if I ask myself, is, is, is the prophet in this particular moment, is he talking about sin? Is he talking about judgment or is he talking about restoration? So let's, let's show you this. I want to show you how this works. We'll walk quickly through these verses and I'll show you what, what we mean. I just read from verse 4 where he talks about uh, you know sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. So what's he talking about there? Sin, right? Jump down to verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? There's a hint there of judgment. Why will you be struck down? But then there's also sin. Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. He's talking about sinfulness. Sin through and through. From the head to the toes, everywhere there is sin. Then in verse 7, Isaiah moves on to judgment. Your, con your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So, judgment. Then verse 9 hints at restoration. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And then in verse 10, the cycle starts over. Look down at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you, appear, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? So here's an example of how that repetition, one of the ways that the, that purposeful repetition works is by gradually getting more specific. He starts by just calling them a sinful nation, offspring of evildoers, but now he starts to get more specific, more precise. They're, they're going through the motions of these sacrifices and festivals. They're doing all these things that God has told them to do, but their hearts are not truly engaged in loving the Lord. So they're offering the rams and the, the, the bulls and the goats and the lambs and all these kind of things. But then he asked the questions, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He tells them in verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So apparently, these are things that they were not doing. So notice, they were doing all of the stuff that was, in a sense, easier to do, right? Because I can go to work and I can earn money and I can buy a bull or, or whatever. I can go and I can give my offering or my tithe and that's easy because I just it's transactional, I just go and I do it, and then I go about my business. But learning to do good, seeking justice, correcting oppression, bringing justice to the fatherless, pleading the widow's cause, those are things that are messy. And yet those are also things God has told us to do. And so they, the, what the people of Israel were doing is they're, they're, they're doing all the things that were easy. They had the appearance of worshiping the Lord, but their lack of concern for those who were oppressed revealed that their values were not in sync with God's values. And so they were choosing sacrifice over obedience. And this is something that we hear God say throughout His Word. To obey is better than sacrifice. It is better 
to obey God on the front end than to just try to live your life how you want to do and think that, oh, it's fine, I'll just offer this sacrifice and it'll make up for the fact that I just did everything I wanted to do. And so this is the point where the prophets have arguably the most to say to us because while we live in a time that is very different from theirs, those kinds of temptations are still very strong. Right, that we have this inclination, just as Israel did, to think that we can be right with God while being wrong with everyone else. But the prophets won't let us think that way. They tell us the truth about our sin, if only we'll have ears to hear. And they also warn us about the ways that God can express judgment. Look, for example, at verse 15. He says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So God is judging His people by turning a blind eye and a deaf ear toward them. They think that they can live their lives however they want to do. They can, they can pursue all their own values and not listen to everything He said. But then they can still go to the temple and they can still offer that sacrifice. They can still worship God and that he's just going to sit back and accept it and be totally fine with it. And he says, no, that's not how this is going to work. When you come before me to spread out your hands in worship, I'm going to turn my eyes from you. I'm not going to look. When you, when you offer up those prayers, even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. I don't think we can imagine any judgment worse than that. But again, there's an offer of restoration. Verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So there's, there's truth-telling here about the ugliness of sin. There's truth-telling about the awfulness of judgment. And there's truth-telling about the, this offer of Restoration that is held out if we will receive it. And that pattern of, of sin, judgment, and restoration, that is a gospel-shaped pattern. Is this not entirely consistent with what the New Testament tells us? I was thinking about that this week, and I thought sin, judgment, restoration, that's what, what we used to call when I was a kid the Romans road. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's sin. The wages of sin is death. That's judgment. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's restoration. So sin, you are sinful, and here are the specific ways you have sinned. Judgment, here's what God has said will happen because of it, and then restoration. And it's worth pointing out that while the prophets do speak to other nations, and so I don't want us just to think of that sin, judgment, restoration as something we kind of go through once, and then once I'm restored then I don't ever have to think about sin or judgment again. Um, the, the prophets do speak to other nations, but much of what they say, they say to those who at least profess to be God's people. So even when we belong to God, even when we've been restored to God, He still occasionally has to chastise us in order to sanctify us. Hebrews 12 quotes from Proverbs when it says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Then the writer of Hebrews adds, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So if we, if we truly listen to the prophets, we ought to be convicted. And this is good because God disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. This is what it means to be a child of God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on in the very next verse to use a very strong word to say, if you are not under God's discipline, if He does not chastise you, if you're never convicted by your sin, then you are an illegitimate son. So if you're a true child of God, you'll be convicted when you hear this announcement of sin and of judgment. And I also want us to remember that the restoration that God holds out to us is entirely from His grace. There, there's nothing we do to earn it or to accomplish it. But that does not mean that this restoration is automatic. In other words, the restoration that God offers us, we don't accomplish it, we don't earn it. But that doesn't mean that God just owes it to us. It requires an appropriate response to God's judgment of our sin. Notice the two choices that Isaiah holds out in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, here's one choice. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So if you're willing and obedient, you'll be restored. Here's the other choice, verse 20. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. So your choices are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. Refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That same choice is held out to every one of us. Here's how John 3 puts it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you are willing to humble yourself before the Lord and surrender to Him in faith, He will welcome you. He will heal and restore you. He will give you life. He will wash you white as snow. And by the way, I didn't plan on saying this, but what does it mean to be white as snow? It's not just really, really white, but snow is something that is white by nature. If you're washed white as snow, it means that you're so clean that it's as if whatever was dirty on you was never there at all. That's what it means to be white as snow. So that's the promise. That's the, the offer of restoration. If you will willingly humble yourself before the Lord. But then the warning is if you refuse and rebel, if you are unwilling to come to Him in faith and repentance, you will not see life. The wrath of God remains on you. So, so the two choices are here. Turn and choose life. Every one of us is, is far more sinful than we could imagine or than we would like to admit. And yet God holds out a way for us to be restored to Him. And the way for that to happen is not by God setting aside His judgment. It's not by God short-circuiting this and saying, you know what, I'm just going to cut straight from sin to restoration. The way that that happens is that God came into the story and that He who had no sin became sin for us. And He bore the judgment of God in our place. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And then He gave that restoration to us. 
He who had no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how this works. Not by us earning it, not by us working our way out of it, but by God Himself coming into the story and although having no sin, becoming sin, bearing the judgment of God in our place so that we could be restored to Him completely. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. and This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And we're going to sing um, the response hymn of all response hymns, Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Those are the only things that are required is that the, the Lamb of God shed his blood and that he bids you come. Whoever you are, wherever you are, however you are, he bids you come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this invitation that you have given to us, this blood-bought invitation to come to you, and the promise that it is impossible for someone to come to you and for you to reject them or turn them away. And yet, Lord, there are many who, who try to come in their own way. They think that uh, they'll come whenever they're done living their life how they want or that they'll just try to find some other way. And yet you have spoken very clearly that there is only one way, and that is to come in faith in your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would work in our hearts to draw us to Jesus, that you would move in us to accomplish this desire to trust in Him, to humble ourselves before Him, this, that you would give us this willingness to bow before Him, that you would break up the stubbornness in our hearts, that we would not be like those who would refuse and rebel and would be eaten by the sword, but that we would be willing and humble and that we would eat the good of the land and that we would, have, uh, that we would be restored to right, rightness with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do this. Lord, I pray for those who have a relationship with you that, that you would uh, convict them of their sin and draw them into increased faithfulness to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.